One points to the other. Well, God bless you. Can you guess what book of the Bible we're in? Yeah, I wasn't going to do Amos, but apparently this slide is up, and so we have no choice to, to do, but to do Amos. No, uh, we started it last week for those of you who are here. It's an obscure book, meaning it's not frequently looked at, preached, nor taught. We're doing it because we're gluttons for punishment. It's not a popular book because its message is weighty. It's about judgment. In fact, God said, through a fellow named Amos, deliver a message of judgment to the nations of the world. Amos was nobody special. He identifies himself, as you recall, as a shepherd, fairly ordinary guy entrusted with an extraordinary message. It was written, oh, 750 years before the time of Christ, just to give you a frame of reference. Amos is a good book for those who have a skewed view of God, meaning he's good, he's forgiving, he's patient, he's gracious, true. But then they leave out the part. He's holy, he judges sin, he gets angry. They leave out that part. Amos is designed to bring us into balance. In fact, as you recall last week in chapter 1, verse 2, Amos said, and the Lord roars. Quite an unusual statement. Distasteful to most to think of God as a roaring lion. But in fact, the Bible says as much about that as his other attributes. And so there'll come a day when people and nations, national leaders, will have to give an account to Almighty God who Amos describes as a roaring lion. And through Amos, God judged or he, he warned of coming judgment to six nations of the world that surrounded Israel. Their character was primarily to be Gentile. They were Gentile nations of the world. And God said to them, because of the way you have treated, or I should say mistreated Israel, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to hold you accountable. And we went over some last week. And just to review, I showed you this little map. The first nation that God uh, warned about coming judgment is ancient Aram. Here it is right here, kingdom of Aram. You could see it right over there. That's present day. Well, let me ask you, do you know what modern day country this represents? Yeah, that's Syria. And so the ancient capital of Aram or the Arameans, Damascus, remains the capital of Syria even today. And so uh, just to give you, again, a frame of reference, this interesting body of water is the Sea of Galilee. See how see its shape kind of wider at the top, narrower at the bottom? Sea of Galilee, a little wider over here. It's, it's a harp shape. And so in Hebrew, the name for harp is Kinneret. And so if you're reading in the Old Testament trying to find the Sea of Galilee, if you see the Sea of Kinneret, that's the Sea of Galilee. It means harp. You really can't tell by looking at the Sea of Galilee, but if you get up above it and look down at it, sometimes we have a chance to do that, you can see that it's harp shape. Anyway, you see this little squiggly old line, a little hard to see. It goes from the north of Israel and it pours out into the uh, Sea of Galilee and goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. This imaginary line, that's called the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is a natural boundary between Israel on this side to the left and or 
or to the west, and then other countries like Syria and Jordan to the right side of it. So um, the first nation God warns about impending judgment is the kingdom, uh, excuse me, is the kingdom of Aram. And then the second one, as you recall, is Philistia. So Philistia is where the Philistines set up shop. It's this red area along the Mediterranean, this is the Mediterranean Sea, along the Mediterranean Sea. That's Philistia, just north of, uh, over here would be Egypt. And so this area is where the Philistines settled. Who are they? We don't know exactly. It's kind of a mystery. Most people think they hail from the Greek islands. They were a seafaring people. They left their homeland and came to the shores of the Mediterranean where they conquered people groups there and took over the land. Why'd they do this? Who knows? Earthquakes, famine, just sheer and utter conquest. Anyway, they set up shop in this area, and they had five major cities, some of which I'm sure you know of, Ashkelon, Ekron, um, Gaza, Gath, that's where Goliath comes from. So that's called Philistia. And God said, by the way, that's present day Gaza. Uh, Richard mentioned it. By the way, thanks, brother, for inviting prayer for our group. I really appreciate it. I wish you were going with us. What's your problem? <laughs> anyway, um, Gaza is a hot spot. The government in Gaza is a group called Hamas. Hamas. They don't like the Israelis. They think the Jews have no business being in the land. This is to put it mildly, to tell you the truth. They're a terror group. At least they're on the... Our government has put them on a a terror group, and they surely satisfy their prerequisites. There's trouble. It's a hot spot, even as we speak now. They're firing missiles from here into here. This is Israel. This is Israel or part of Israel, so that you see they have a shared little border. So from Gaza, lots of missiles are coming over here. As Richard mentioned, Lord willing, we will be in this area in just a few days because we minister to people here in the south. We have a good opportunity whenever there's missile fire because they wonder, as Richard said, thanks for doing that, um, why are you doing this? <laughs> they ask us. It's not on the tourist uh, agenda. We go there to serve them in any way we possibly could. And it in, our presence alone invites questions. Why are you doing this to come here? It's, your, it's sur- surely out of your comfort zone. And we do it to demonstrate and hopefully declare the love of the Lord Jesus to them. So Philistia was the next nation to be judged. And then if you go north from here, up the Mediterranean coast, by the way, see how smooth this coast is? Israel has no natural harbor. No natural harbor. You know, if God was going to choose a piece of real estate for his chosen people, I don't know. I don't want to tell God what to do, but I would think he could have done better. I mean, there's nothing going on there. It's not oil rich. They have no natural harbor. In fact, there was a guy named Herod the Great. Have you heard of him? Herod the Great was a genius and a nutcase. He really illustrates the expression that, uh, of there being a fine line between genius and insanity. He crossed the line. Herod was nuts, had his family members killed and all the rest, but he was a genius. And he built a harbor in a place called Khazaria or Caesarea 
on the coast of the Mediterranean. You can visit it today. It's fascinating. He used a kind of a concrete that solidifies underwater. In the last class, someone told me he watched the show that revealed one of the key ingredients in so doing was volcanic ash, which had to be brought into the area from different places. Uh, Herod did this. You can see the outline of of the harbor there today. Anyway, uh, the next people group to be judged after Philistia, according to Amos, are the Phoenicians up here. Do you know what modern-day country that is? Yeah, that's Lebanon. And so you can see the key cities of Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon or Sidon. You can see Beirut, Lebanon. That's the present capital of Lebanon today. They have their own issues up there. There's another group called Hezbollah, which means the party of Allah, causing huge problems with Israel in the the north. I'm no prophet by no means, but I think there's going to be all-out war soon. I just think uh, Israel's neighbors are really gearing up. Um, Hezbollah is being supplied by Iran. You know, the Persian people, the Iranians, are, are wonderful people. Their national leaders are not so good. And man, are they stirring up things on purpose because their brand of Islam, I'm not indicting all Islamic people, I just wanted to tell you, the brand of Islam that's popular in Iran has to invite a worldwide cataclysm so as to usher in the return of the next caliph or descendant of Muhammad. So for the next caliphate or Islamic world government to be inaugurated, it has to be preceded by worldwide cataclysm. That's why Iran stirs up things, you know, in different bodies of water. You know, they'll take a British ship here or this here or that and, you know, challenge us to intervene. And they're surely challenging Israel to intervene. I think, I think Israel has come very, very close to doing so and still may. So that would be an unbelievable catalyst for significant upheaval in the area. So I think it's inevitable that it's, that it's going to come. Of course, the Bible tells us it will. But just from a current events point of view, things are really gearing up. Anyway, so that's the next people group to be judged right up here. And then there's Edom. So you go from here and you go around here and you get here to the kingdom of Edom. This is present part of present-day Jordan. The Edomites are in that particular area. And then the Ammonites are next to be judged. Here's the kingdom of Ammon right here. Again, uh, Ammon is in present-day Jordan. And you can see here, this is the ancient capital of the Ammonites. And it remains the capital of, the, of Jordan today. Uh, Amman, Jordan. That's where it is. Some of us will uh, probably be going to that capital in April, we're going to cross over the border and go into Jordan because at present it's a friendly border crossing. That can change in the next three minutes, but for now it's a friendly border crossing. So those are five nations of the world we read about last week who are, um, are going to be judged by God. And now it, the plot thickens, if you will. And so take a look with me now in the next chapter, Amos chapter 2, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, next nation, 
to be judged. And for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So that's a formula introduced to us last week, used in chapters 1 and 2, eight times. It's kind of a formula for three transgressions and for four. It's a Hebraism. It doesn't mean these nations only committed four infractions, three or four. It means the fullness of their sin from God's point of view has been achieved. Therefore, his intervention, his judgment is justifiable. God is very, very patient, but there comes a time when he says enough is enough. I've given you all a chance to repent. You you have refused it. I am holy. There will be the outpouring upon my wrath. So that's kind of what that expression means. For three transgressions, for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now, Ammon and Moab. Again, uh, here is Moab, also present-day Jordan, and Ammon. By the way, if you remember this little, uh, I don't think it's a word, but aim, A-M-E, then you'll know the order of these people groups. So A for Ammon, M for Moab, and then E for Edom. Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites. That's a good thing if you're ever going to be like on Jeopardy or something. And good old Alex, is he still doing this stuff? When he asks you, you're going to have this question. People are going to just be amazed. So anyway, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites are sons of somebody. Do you know who their father is? It's a guy named Lot. So uh, Lot, you know, tied to the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing. By God's grace, he gets extracted from Sodom and Gomorrah, and his daughters are pretty upset about this. They're, They're residents of... Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's destruction, and they start thinking and lamenting over the possibility that they may never have children over for them. You know, this, you know, all the good men are left in Sodom and Gomorrah, and, you know, they're dead. What are they going to do? So they get their father drunk. And they fought, he fathers through them because he's drunk. When you're drunk, you don't know what you're doing. And he fathers through them two sons, Ammon and Moab, and the Ammonites and the Moabites come from that very sordid affair. I'll tell you why I bring this out to you. There are critics of the Bible who say the Bible is not God's word. What makes you think it is? Well, this doesn't prove the Bible. It's just a little logic here. If I was going to fabricate a body of information and call it God's, I wouldn't put incidents like that in it. (laughs) I would just leave that X-rated stuff out. If it was a human fabricating the Bible, the words of God, I would pretty it up. I would clean it up. But you don't find that in 66 books of Scripture. You get raw human reality. To me, that tells me it's not a human fabrication. This is God being authentic as he is, being honest, and giving us quite a clear picture of the good things and even the horrific things we humans are capable of. Okay, so Moab is the next nation to be judged, and notice the particular infraction singled out because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Again, here are the Edomites. They are in close proximity to the Moabites. At some point in history, the Moabites decided not to like the king of Edom. Moabites over here didn't like the king of Edom. So what they did is, they, he's dead, they dug up his bones. 
I mean, that's what happens when you put it in the ground. You know, flesh eventually deteriorates, decays. You're left with bones. They dig up the bones, and they burn the bones. And um, God doesn't like this. Why? Well, even today, we find it rather distasteful, do we not, to desecrate one's burial site? We think it's a heinous kind of a thing to do that. And that day, even more, because they had this notion if I burn the bones of someone, I will, in effect, destroy that person's soul and therefore remove any presence of that person from reality. So that's what they were up to. We have such disgust for this guy, the king of Edom. We'll dig up his bones, we'll burn them. In the process, we'll destroy his soul and he will vanish. There will be no more him. That kind of deal. Well, I don't agree with that because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our soul goes on, but they had a rather undeveloped theology of what happens when you die. And based on it and superstitions accompanied with it, they decided to burn. I mean, this is a major insult. They will burn the bones even of a dead guy to make sure he's removed from any possible ability of living on in eternity. In so doing, it's a slap in the face of the giver of life because God values life, uh, has made it holy because human life is made in his image. Therefore, to do such a thing is an insult to the giver of life. By the way, this, this attack, the fact that we're created in the image of God and, th- thus have a, uh, and thus have a holy character as humans, that is the basis for what I believe to be should be every Christian's Um, rejection of abortion. Do not make that a political issue, Democrat, Republican. Don't do that. We don't take our marching orders from any political party. We take our marching orders from Scripture. And the God of Scripture has pronounced upon human life, not, not animal life, not the other elements in creation. We're distinguished from the other elements in creation in that we've been created in the image of God. Therefore, even um, the even life produced under less than ideal circumstances, an unwed mom, a teenage mom, and so on. These are not ideal circumstances. We all agree. Even so, the baby's not at fault. The, the, the character of the baby is still created in the image of God. But what if someone has a disability so that the quality of that person's life is... Uh, is, is not what it is for others. So what? The essential nature of life is that it's created in the image of God. Therefore, uh, this is not a political statement. So if you think I'm being political, you're, you're wrong about that. This is a biblical statement. It is inconceivable to me that a Bible-believing Christian of any denomination, this is where we can agree, uh, would not be repulsed by abortion as an alternative to adoption and things like that. And it's because of the character of God imprinted on every human life. So anyway, God is upset about what the Moabites did here. And therefore, verse 2 says through Amos, I will send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels. A citadel is like a fortress. The citadel of Keriot. Keriot was a major city amongst the Moabites. It's a very interesting Uh, They burned the bones of the king of Edom, and now God says, I'll send fire upon them. Verse 3, I'll also cut off the judge from her midst. In other words, the system of jurisprudence will just be in disarray. I'll slay all her princes with him, says the Lord. 
So God now has had Amos pronounce judgments on six Gentile nations surrounding Israel. But God's judgment is not limited to the Gentile nations of the world, as you will now see. He also warns of judgment to come upon his own covenant people, Israel and Judah. So look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I'll not revoke its punishment. Once again, same formula. It applies to all people, Jew or Gentile. Again, there comes a time when the sin of God's own people has reached its maximum from God's point of view so that in the mind of any rational person, he would be justified in judging them. Now, why does it say Judah? I mentioned last week at this time, Israel, this is all this is Israel, but the kingdom was divided. Here's the dividing line. You had two southern tribes, Judah, and those tribes are Judah and Benjamin. And then you had here 10 northern tribes, uh, and that's called Israel. Israel is a term for both Israel and Judah, but at this time, they were separated. And there are circumstances that led to the divided kingdom. It wasn't good. It was human sin. But at this time, Judah had a king. And Israel had a different different king, even though that's all of Israel. So first, God warns about his judgment upon Judah. Why? Because they rejected the law of the Lord. You know what that implies? They had the law of the Lord. You notice that's not said with any of the previous nations. The six previous nations of the world did not have the law of the Lord. How did the Jews get it? They were enslaved people for 400 plus years in Egypt. They cry out to God. He graciously hears. He delivers them. If you've been enslaved for 400 years, how do you become a a duly constituted people group? Well, you need a constitution to do it. And that's what God gave them through Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave them a constitution. A duly constituted people are not duly constituted without a constitution. God said to a slave people, I mean, when you're a slave person, you don't even know how to live. You have your newfound freedom. But how do you live? Well, God said, I'll help you to. I'll give you a constitution. He did not do that with any other people group on earth. He distinguished the Jews on this basis. He gave them his law, the commandments from Mount Sinai through Moses, the lawgiver. And what is the infraction that God is going to judge them for? They disobeyed it. They didn't take it seriously. Look, uh, they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. He gave them rules and regulations and statutes and ordinances by which to live as if to say, I care how you live. It's not a caring parent who as a child is growing up doesn't set bounds. It's not a caring parent who doesn't say, don't do that, do this. Those restraints are manifestations of the love of a parent. And God said, I love you. I care about how you live. So therefore, I've given you the law and ordinances and statutes, and you have just walked away from them. In fact, you've replaced truth with lies. Their lies also have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walk. It's been passed on from generation to generation. Religious untruths, religious lies. I know this firsthand because I grew up in this background as a 
practitioner of Judaism, our rabbis make things up almost as we go along. They have so complicated things. We don't know what the scriptures say. We don't understand. We think the only way by which we can ever have God's favor is through our own good deeds, virtue, and works. That's a lie. Because in God's law, it says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Do you know that's in the... That's in the Old Testament. Leviticus says that. I've given it to you on the altar. There's atonement in the blood. And, and so our rabbis, and through generation to generation, have absolutely ignored that and set up a religion of their own choosing called Judaism, which has us jumping through all kinds of man-made hoops to try, to try to climb a ladder of virtue, which makes us acceptable to God. But it's too high. There's too many rungs on it. Not the best of us will ever accede to the perfection and holiness of God. Of course, the New Testament confirms this, doesn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we exchange the simplicity and purity of God's word for lies. And so God says it's time for judgment on this particular point. Folks, here's the point. With privilege comes responsibility. God gave my people great privilege. Therefore, we have even greater responsibility than the other nations of the world who have not been given such great privilege. Our judgment is great, has been historically, and will yet be great. Things are not over yet. So verse 5, I'll send fire upon Judah and will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Some say, I'm one of them, that the fulfillment of this came under a man named Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. when he conquered Jerusalem and carried off the population into slavery and so on. Well, if it happened then in 586 B.C., doesn't that mean it's over? No, because my people have not repented, and God still remains holy. He still roars like a lion. So there's more judgment to come to my people. I think we're experiencing it even now. Israel is a magnificent place. It's, a, it's an overwhelmingly interesting country and all the rest. But there's no peace in it. There's no peace in it. Israel's neighbors continue to be as antagonistic towards her than ever. I think the next attack on Israel's probably around the corner. Why? Well, God's going to hold people culpable who mess with who he refers to the apple of his eye. I know that but it doesn't remove responsibility from my people. We brought this on our own heads. When we reject our good shepherd, we're subject to ravenous wolves, hence the problem in the Middle East today. It's spiritual. It's not political. So there are going to be uh, great difficult times for the Jews worldwide. I'm not making this up. Daniel mentioned it. In fact, he called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another word for Israel. The time of Jacob's trouble. You may know, you may have heard it to be referred to as the great tribulation. That's a time of the outpouring of God's wrath upon the world and uh, judgment upon Jewish people in particular. Does that mean he's through with the Jews? 
Not if you read the rest of the story. Romans 11. And then, so that means future time, all Israel will be saved. Why is that important for you to know? Because just as Israel has sinned and God has judged, and yet God has remained faithful to his covenant with Israel, so too you have sinned and will be judged. But God will remain faithful to his covenant with you. That's the new covenant. As with Israel, so with the church. If God finally said, I've had it with you Jews, I'm wiping you out, once you're going to say that with regard to Christians? I've had it with you Christians, I'm wiping you out. Because as I've said many times, we're not so hot either. The character of God is revealed in his transaction with Israel. Israel is holy, though privileged. I mean, unholy, though privileged, and God remains holy. So to the church. The church is has been, in many cases, unholy, though privileged. And God in his holiness will judge, but will never, ever, ever break his new covenant with members of the church of Jesus Christ. So, um, now verse 6, the Lord says, for three transgressions, here's that formula again, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the... So, so, so now God is turning to uh, Israel. Again, that's the northern kingdom, as I mentioned to you. Judah in the south, Israel over here. So this is the eighth time we see this formula, six times with reference to the Gentile nations, once with reference to Judah, and once with reference to Israel. And here's what's happening, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. So there was a provision in God's law given to the people, which said, if uh, someone owed a debt, that person can volunteer to sort of be sold to the creditor, sort of as an indentured servant, so as to satisfy the indebtedness. What the judges, leaders in Israel were doing is that they were selling even the righteous for money. I uh, imagine a scenario like this. Rich people came to the judges of Israel, bribed them, and said, here's a guy, we don't like him. He's done nothing wrong. He owes no debts, no debts. He's committed no crimes, but I don't like him. I will coat the palm. I'll give you some money if you uh, sell him, the righteous one. That's what they did. The justice system was turned on its head. Not only that, um, they would even sell the needy for a pair of sandals. It sort of indicates the system became so corrupt. Even, even for meager material value, they would betray their own People. Verse 7, these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. <laughs> this is crazy. Some in Israel were so greedy that they pursued absolutely everything a poor man owned, even the dust which he would put on his head as an indication of repentance for his indebtedness. They would be after even that. And they would also turn aside the way of the humble. A humble person, that's a good characteristic. Uh, still, they, they would discourage it. The value system kind of reminds me of America, for crying out loud. What's right is wrong, and what's wrong is right. That's what kind of happened then. And a man, look at this, and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. What's up with that? Well, they, the dad and son would go to a pagan shrine where they had temple prostitutes. And dad and son would have the same woman there. Again, why is this in here? Well, because God tells the truth. 
And it's not a pretty picture, human nature. Also, it's to persuade us that God doesn't fly off the handle and he doesn't get impatient. Good night. These people didn't just miss choir practice. Do you see what the, what's going on here? Who in their right mind would say to God, you're not justified in judging this? It went crazy. Verse 8, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. So what does that mean? There was another provision in the law. I'll put it on the screen. It's from Exodus. It says, Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, here's what that meant. Your neighbor owed you a debt, couldn't pay it. The neighbor would give you a cloak, an outer garment, as a pledge. Good faith pledge. I'm going to pay you back. I can't right now. Here's the, my cloak as a pledge. So if you do this, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you're to return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I'll hear, for I am compassionate. So not only did the folks in Israel at this time not honor that, they would keep one's cloak overnight, leaving that poor person with absolutely nothing even to keep him warm and protected at night. But not only did they did do that, it says in the house of their... Oop, I missed it. It also said they stretch out beside every altar on those garments. A poor person would give a cloak as a pledge. The creditor, the unjust creditor, would not only keep it overnight, but actually use it to lie on when he went for worship in some pagan temple. So this is not good. In fact, God grieves just like a parent does when a child goes astray. You grieve. Uh, you, you ache. You're, you're burdened. I wonder if you can pick up the hurt father heart of God in verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. These are my children. Look what they're doing. What have I done wrong? I destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed the fruit above and his root below. So the Amorites, here's where they hung out. You can see them right here in this area, Amorites. Amorites over there. When Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt, they left Egypt in the south. They came up on this side of the Jordan River, and they ran into the Amorites over here, the Amorites. They had two kings, the Amorites did, uh, Sihon or Sion and, and Og, Og. The Bible says they were big, real big, and it says Og, in fact, was so big, he had a bed uh, that was 13 and a half feet long. It's a long bed. What's God who entered into a covenant with Israel saying? He's saying, you couldn't handle them. They're fierce warriors and they're giants. You're just little Jews. He said, but I gave you the victory. What good dad wouldn't intervene to protect his children to the best of his ability? And of course, God's ability is limitless. You know what a grieving dad is saying? I did these things. Is this, is, this is how you're responding to me? 
I gave you the, I gave you my word to show you I care how you live. I distinguished you from every people group on earth. I protected you from those you could not resist. Not only that, verse 10, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I birthed you, in other words. I gave you new life. You'd still be in Egypt. You'd be a slave people eternally. I set you free. And not only that, I led you in the wilderness. Remember, he's saying to them, like a dad reminding a child of the relationship, I I fed you for 40 years. I did this so that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. In other words, the Holy Land. It's like a grieving father saying, don't I have a right to expect more? Have I abused you? Have I exploited you? Have I abandoned you? What? I birthed you. I delivered you. I freed you. I supplied you. I protected you. And all through the Old Testament and even into the New, you see this key redemptive event in Israel's history brought up to them again and again, the fact that God delivered them. The key redemptive event in Israel's history is the exodus from bondage. God reminds, God wants Israel to be reminded of this so as to respond accordingly. Could I ask you this question? What is the key redemptive event in the life of Christians? Jesus on the cross. And doesn't the Bible remind us of that? Here's our problem. It's called grace. The great blessing of grace is a problem for us. Based on the grace of God, at the point of temptation, we are prone to say, I'm just going to give in to it because I know my Father is gracious and he'll forgive me. So we take the grace of God as permission to sin all the more when God wants his grace to do the opposite. He wants the relationship which he has bequeathed to us by grace to be a deterrent to our sin. Instead, based on our misinterpretation of grace, we use it as permission to sin. I know this is wrong. We're right at the point of temptation. I know this is wrong, but, you know, I deserve a break today. I'm going to do it. After, I'll just say, God, I'm sorry. I'll do it again. I'll say, God, I'm sorry again. I'll do it again. Man, I know God will forgive me. And you're right, he will. But as with Israel, he grieves. He says the privilege of the relationship is being misinterpreted by you. You're taking it to be permission to do what you want to do, and it should be the opposite. You're mine. I'm yours. Other people groups don't have this kind of relationship with me that you do. I'm holy. Be holy. So that's what Israel did. This is recorded because this is what we do as well. It's not just about the Jews. Furthermore, God says, verse 11, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. This is not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. What's he saying? Um, He gave them prophets. A prophet is someone who speaks to people about God. Isn't that a privilege? To have access to God's will and ways. And so God said, I provided for you. I raised up prophets. Not only that, Nazarites. 
What are they? Nazarites were not priests, not prophets. They were lay people. They were not appointed to any particular priestly or prophetic office. They were fairly ordinary people who said, wow, we want to really, really make deep dedication and sacrifices to Almighty God. We're not required to, but we want to. We're choosing to forgo certain pleasures because we love God. He's our Father. Look what he's done for us. And so they did something called, the. they took a Nazarite vow. You can read about it in more depth in Numbers chapter 16. It was a vow involving three things. One, they didn't drink. No wine or strong drink. We could have a discussion. Does the Bible command us not to drink or whatever? We have a fight about that. But the point is, they chose to do that, even if they didn't have to. They chose to forgo certain pleasures because to them it was a sign of commitment to God. Second thing, they didn't cut their hair. And that day their long hair would be an indication that they were set apart for holy living. Third thing, they didn't go near dead bodies, not even if the dead body was their dad, their mom, brother, or sister because you would become ceremonially defiled. And it was a way of saying, we love you, family, but we love God even more. Those were the three requirements for the Nazarite vow. It's a good thing. These were lay people. Again, not priests, prophets. Priests were chosen as priests as a line of descent. Your dad was a priest. Your descendants of Aaron, Aaron. Prophets specially called by God. The Nazarite vow was open to men and women. Women couldn't be prophets or priests, but they could take the Nazarite vow. Why in the world would the leadership of Israel discourage prophets from speaking and Nazarites from living a holy life? And yet, that is exactly what they did, as is indicated somewhere here in the text. Verse 12, But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Holy moly. These are God's people. He has a right to judge them. Verse 13, this is sad. Behold, I'm weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. We should have joy and delight from our children and sometimes our wayward and rebellious children instead cause us to be burdened. We love them. We'll never give up on them. But now we carry the burden. We're weighted down by them as if a wagon is filled with sheaves. God had every right to derive pleasure from Israel, his covenant people he did not. They have been instead a burden instead of a blessing. Great privilege and yet irresponsibility. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. So what is this all about? Uh, I'm one of those people who believes once saved, always saved. I believe that because I think that's the preponderance of evidence in the Bible. We could have a debate about it, and you, I'll tell you in advance, you will lose. I will win. I know this one. I know every argument, you will lose. Why? Preponderance of evidence. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If salvation 
and its continuance had to do with my virtue, sure, you could lose it. We could lose it. But it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the uh, efficacy or effectiveness of the shed blood of Christ. We even sing it, uh, something about uh, the blood will never lose its power. I will lose mine, you will lose yours. I got all that. It's not about you. Salvation is about the Savior, not the one saved. I do not hang on to God. My grip is too weak. He hangs on to me. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He says, I'll finish the work which I began in you. I'll kill you in a debate. I dare you. I want to win. Because if I win, you win. And you're forever secure in Christ Jesus. So, having made this point, sometimes in our eternal security, we sin too easily and too freely. But there's judgment, even of believers, with regard to how we have lived as believers. Not my words, the Bible's. Here it is. 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. That's the body of Christ, whether good or evil. Israel has not been forsaken. No. Read the rest of the Bible. No. Israel has not been forsaken, but Israel has suffered tremendous loss and will continue to, and the greatest loss is yet to come. Time of Jacob's trouble. Still, the covenant with, that God made with Israel is intact. You, as a Christian, we collectively as the church, we have sinned. In many cases, to the same extent that Israel did, though we'd be greatly privileged. But God, who's entered into covenant with us, what covenant? The new and far better covenant, the new covenant, including Jews and Gentiles who accept Jesus, that new covenant is irreversible. It's inaugurated by the blood of Christ set in stone that ensures our salvation and the perpetuation of God's covenant with us as his covenant is perpetuated with Israel but as with Israel we can suffer great loss and this passage 2 Corinthians 5.10 seems to um, relate to it yes God is not mocked we will be judged for our deeds in the body we're saved to the uttermost but how have we lived as saved people God doesn't want us to be a burden. He wants us to be a blessing to him. He wants us to relate to him as a heavenly father who gave us his word, who set us free, who redeemed us with the blood of the lamb, who's protected us, who's been our supply, who's seen us through our own wilderness wanderings and ensures us we'll cross over into, into our promised land one day. That's heaven as well. And in the journey, he wants us to be a blessing and not a burden. And to the extent that we're not, sure, there's judgment. We will be judged for our deeds in the body of Christ, whether good or bad. How have we used our time, our gifts, our money, our material blessings? How have we lived? By what value system have we lived? That kind of thing. So this is not just about the Jews. This is about, this is about all people because Jewish human nature is no different than Gentile human nature. Prone to wander. That's our nature. And the father says, don't do it. Don't do it out of fear for me. Do it out of love for me. Who has loved you more than me? Who has set you free? Who would die for you? 
Who's imparted his guidelines for life? Who cares about how you live the way I do? Who has gone before you and dealt with adversaries you don't even know of? Giant-sized challenges. Who's brought you through those? As with Sihon and Og, who has supplied you in your wilderness wanderings? Let the relationship not give you permission to sin. Let the relationship motivate you not to. That's, that's the deal. So now in closing, let me just mention this to you. Every judgment mentioned here happened. Damascus was carried off by the Assyrians. Gaza was wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar. Tyre was conquered by Alexander the Great. The Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites were all decimated by the Assyrians. Judah was carried off into exile to Babylon. Israel was conquered and scattered by the Assyrians. What does it all mean? It means this. Our God reigns. Take it easy tonight. Go to sleep. Even after watching the late night news... (laughs) Go to sleep. Our God reigns. You're disgusted by injustice. (sighs) So is your father. When there are three transgressions, nay, even four, when God says the timing is right for the outpouring of my wrath, I will hold the nations accountable. Relax. Take it easy. Our father reigns. Our God reigns. He's fully in control. What's ours? responsibility. I'm not the justice maker, neither are you. Mine is to tell people about the justice maker, just like Amos. There's judgment to come. Our job is to tell them. And there's a defense that you can have. It's the blood of Jesus. You can plead the blood of Jesus. That is the best. No, that is the only defense that will get you off of God's hook. Otherwise, you're on his hook. Individuals, national leaders, whole countries on God's hook, and only faith in Jesus can get you off of God's hook. That's our job. And our job is to so live that we don't compromise the very message we preach. And anyone here, including any pastor in this church, is just as prone to sin against God as anybody else. That's why God gave us Amos. Don't be like Israel. Don't misinterpret the intimate relationship I've given you. Don't squander the privilege. With the privilege comes responsibility. For to whom much is given, can you complete that for me? Much is required. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of redemption. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for enabling us to be born anew. Thank you for forgiveness of sin once we've committed. Thank you for the possibility of a fresh start, even today, even right now. Oh, God, enhance our appreciation of the relationship. Don't let us minimize nor diminish it. Take it lightly. Wow, you paid a price to get us. Therefore, may we be a blessing to you and not a burden. A holy people as you are holy. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Hope to see you next time.